Welcome to the Scandinavian Mind podcast. I'm Conrad Olsen, founder and editor-in-chief of Scandinavian Mind. Today we are looking back at the Baltic Sea Water Talks, a conference that we co-hosted last week together with the Foundation Initiative Ute and the Royal Institute of Technology. I had a blast hosting and moderating this day, and I wanted to take the chance to revisit one of many insightful and really powerful discussions that took place at Utevatrus in the outer rims of the Stockholm archipelago. This panel is about what the business community can do to make a positive impact on sustainability in general and on the Baltic Sea specifically. But before we go into that, let's hear from the founders of Initiative Ute. So I'm here with uh, Thomas Jelm and Robert Sederlund, founders of Initiative Ute. Why are we doing this Baltic Sea Water Talks? The idea behind this was formed uh, a year ago because we had we have a collaboration with with the Royal Institute of Techno- Technology, and we have a, a very solid ground of knowledge and experience to build on, and uh, really uh, pull our weight into how we uh, together can can make the Baltic Sea a better place and, and sort of regain the balance in the Baltic Sea. That mm. is really the case and the the idea behind this. Uh, Thomas, um, give us a description of, of the work that you're doing with, with the wetlands here, here at Uta. Yes, it's interesting. Can you give me some hours? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the wetland for us is mainly a, a method in uh, cleaning water before it comes out to the Baltic Sea. <clears throat> and also make a reproduction place for pike and perch. Uh, based on the facts, I think is that uh, we have a lot. We have too much nutrients in the Baltic Sea, and we have too little fish. The balance in the sea is not okay, but the wetland is a way to do it. And Robert and I would say, can we build 300 wetlands? Maybe that's the beginning in in turning uh, it to balance. All right, that was Robert and Thomas, founders of Initiative Ute. I guess it's worth mentioning that I've gotten to know them both due to the fact that we all live part-time on this beautiful island, and I've come to really admire the work that they do for the local environment. You can watch and listen to all of the panels at ScandinavianMind.com, don't forget to sign up to our newsletter to stay updated on the latest news and learn about upcoming talks and events. Here now, the panel leveraging our resources, what the business sector can do to help improve the Baltic Sea. We will hear from Louise Kernisch, Manager Strategic Sustainability at Rumble Management Sweden, Peter Viva Nilsson, CEO of Race for the Baltic, and Emma Moulin, Managing Director of Bee Water. Enjoy. Welcome back to Baltic Sea Water Talks and uh, this program for this afternoon. My name is Konrad Olsson and I'm here to guide you uh, to this afternoon of another set of sessions. Uh, we are at the beautiful Ute Vadshus in the Stockholm archipelago. We're going to move on now to a panel uh, and talk about what the business sector can do for the Baltic Sea and for positive impact in general. And we have... Uh, 
really distinguished panel here. Uh, I'm going to introduce them. We have Peter Viva Nilsson, CEO of Race for the Baltic. We have Louise Koenig, Manager Strategic Sustainability at Rambol Management. And Emilia Molin, Managing Director and Nordic Business Lead for Nespresso Professional and B Water. Um, Louise, I thought I'd start with you actually, because I think you have perhaps most broad experience working both with the private and public sector, helping, helping them with sustainability issues. Um, so I just, I just want to fly in really broad and, and just ask you, what are some of the most important steps an organization can take in order to act, you know, take as much responsibility as possible when it comes to sustainability? Okay, um, in my role, I've been working with the sustainability issues for the last 25 years with both public and private companies, also where I am today. I would say that there are mainly four questions that I would ask when I come into a management group, and that is like, uh, why are you here? Uh, connect the purpose uh, to the business idea, because that's anywhere where your brand is going to end up. And secondly, uh, what societal problem can you contribute to solve? Um, I think a, a lot of good intentions and ideas comes from that kind of challenge, and then maybe you lose it around the way. And, um, and then, are you doing enough in relation to your size? If you are big, you need to do more. Mm. And then third one, how did you work with a concept called Triple Bottom Line, which many of you are familiar with, I can see nodding heads. But that is, how do you get uh, the environmental, the social and the economic aspect together in everything that you do? And uh, it's not easy, and I think that normally, and also what we've been talking about today, has been focusing on the environmental problems, and we forget about the social and the economic impact and value and how we value things. So those four things, I think that all companies should start with. Um, and I would say that uh, somebody said to me during lunch, yeah, you know, why, do, why doesn't everybody work with sustainability? Well, I'm also saying that if it would be so easy to do it and to find no solutions, everybody would be doing it. It's not. There is a lot of conflicting targets around and you should take them. And I would advise all companies, if they are listening now, you should also give your sustainability manager uh, a red card. Uh, the person should be able to ask questions, um, challenge ethically. Um, and I think that this is what a lot of companies are missing today. We are so far away from reaching the goals that we need to reach for 2030. And the clock is ticking. So, you know, when I work with my team, I go like tick-tack, tick-tack, tick-tack all the time. They're really, but that's, that's where we're really... Uh, um, so, so the clock is ticking. I think for the longest time, the issue of sustainability was kind of like an add-on. Uh, whereas now you're talking more and more about sort of making it a part of the, of the business model. Uh, but, you know, of course, as a business, you have to take care of the revenue streams, the, the business model, you know, in, in sort of matching those two, a sustainable business model with sort of a responsible sustainability strategy. How do you merge those two? I think that um, many companies today, they don't put enough effort into actually working revenue driven when they create uh, sustainable products and services. It's something that they do add on, but they don't work with the data. For example, uh, some of you know, I used to work with, uh, uh, in retail uh, with food, 
And uh, what do I mean with working revenue driven? We talked about that before, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have an assortment and maybe you have 80,000 products, uh, that's where you go shopping every day, even though your basket may only be 70 products when you go shopping food. To what extent do you as a company, if it's Ica, Cooper, Axford, work revenue driven? That means how do they measure what products are more sustainable? How do they make consumer benefit from buying those products? How do they make suppliers benefit from providing those products? Where they put on the shelf, where they put in the commercial, how do they get benefit from actually um, driving and developing sustainable products? That's what I mean with working revenue driven. And a lot of companies, they don't do that. And I think it can also be that you are afraid of keeping mm. two business models at the same time, because you may actually have a business model, say, for example, selling uh, four t-shirts for 100 krona. And then you start a conscious line where you have a t-shirt costing a thousand krona. And of course, there is a lot of ethical debate in a management group about that. But I say, don't be afraid. You need to run two parallel business models in order to find a sustainable one. And you need to work revenue driven. Right. Luis, I'm going to get back to you. Uh, but I thought we'd bring in you, uh, uh, Emilia, in terms of infusing this in the business. So uh, Be Water, you are part of what's called 1% for the planet. Uh, but tell us about that. 1% for the Planet is an organization founded by the Patagonia founder. And it means that all companies that are part of this platform, it's more a platform than an organization, mm. uh, promise to give 1% of the revenue uh, to environmental causes. And we, being in the water business, have of course um, decided to go with water-related projects on each market. Right, so it's one percent of the revenue, not the uh, the gains. Or mm. yes. wonderful. So, what causes are you supporting? Um, we are supporting here. I'm here today, and as you can see, since I brought this up on stage <laughs> as well, uh, we work very closely and very proudly with Robert and Thomas and Initiative Ute. Uh, which is a project that is very close to my heart and also close to, to everyone in the team's hearts as well. In Finland and Denmark, we, in Denmark we work with Green Kayak, which is a, an environmental NGO. Um, and in Finland we work with a bigger organization called John Nurminen Foundation that is also engaged uh, for the Baltic Sea. Right. And as I understand it, it's important that it's local. Right, that you are engaged in local I initiatives. Think, or? Yeah, I, I think I'm a, I come from the NGO world, um, and I think that all NGOs do a great job. Uh, I mean, we will always need organizations working in nonprofits. Uh, when it comes to the company side and, and companies getting engaged in sort of uh, organizations or projects, I think it's really great that all the team members, I mean, all our employees, all our clients can actually come here and see the cause that we support. And we, two times a year, we come out, all the team, to, to work in the project. And I mean, it gives something for Anna or Erica or Susan or Henrik sitting here um, to actually be part of the project, to actually uh, take the pike from the sort of small pond to the sea or vice versa. Mm. Because then you're really here. And of course, I want to say that for the organization, um, it's of course good to have volunteers, but it's also important that you get funds 
uh, and non-restricted funds. We're going to talk about that later. That's a good point. Uh, but I thought just as a personal reflection, I think it's interesting what you just said. You, you come from the nonprofit world, but you've decided to move into business, but rather with a sort of a impactful way. Can you talk about your own personal uh, transition there? Yes, I think, as also Luis, you mentioned, I think it's really sort of urgent that we all go into action mode. And I think especially on the company side, all companies, all businesses have a really big responsibility to take. And it's now time to take it, or it's, as Luis said, already sort of the clock is ticking. Right. And I, I personally want to be part of that journey. Uh, I think it's really exciting, uh, exciting and it's also super important. Um, Peter, you kind of have the, the opposite <laughs> trajectory in a way. You come from the world of business and I know a lot of your colleagues in, in Race for the Baltic are sort of from, from uh, the business world. Can you talk about you, that perspective going into something like Race for the Baltic and the work you do there? You mean for me personally? Yeah, or? sure. Start there and just then go into the organization. Well, I mean, it's, it's of course a big difference working in, a, in the private sector versus working in a, in a non-profit. Mm. Then um, we're trying to, I guess, maybe add that to the, to the non-profit. Uh, philanthropy and non-profit in this part of the region is maybe not as mature as in many other parts of the world. Uh, and I think maybe that's something we can add on uh, mm. by coming from the professional sector and, and helping out with uh, professionalizing uh, the, the sector as such. Right. And when we talked before, you, you, you made it very clear that you are not activists and that sort of place in, in, in uh, the, your favor or the favor of the causes that you are actually trying to uh, work with. Well, I guess to some extent, as mentioned, I mean, the private sector is a very big sector. I think like well, the vast majority of the value creation in, in, in the society is actually done within the private sector. And of course, then also a lot of the uh, environmental impact comes from uh, is in the private sector. So from our side, I mean, understanding the private sector, how they think, uh, speaking the language, uh, I think is key to get them to, to also involve. And uh, of course, since that is a very big part where the impact is, uh, that can also make a very big change, which we've seen the various examples of. Right. So talk about that. The, the work that you do is a lot in speaking to uh, big companies in and around the, the Baltic Sea and what they can do. Can you give some examples of, of the work that you do there? Yeah, so we typically, I mean, coming from the private sector, we typically work with things that are very concrete and, and put a lot of focus on measurability and, and efficiency. Uh, so we kind of select projects based on that and we run our own projects concretely. And, and we often end up, so one typical example is when another NGO that is very more of an activist, uh, they've been working, they've found a really great potential where there's a lot of leakage in this case. Uh, but then when they come to the, to the companies, it's really like curtain down. They don't want to talk to each other and they can't talk to each other. So for us, and John Urban, as you mentioned in this case, we cooperate on, on, on a project there. Uh, it becomes a perfect situation where we can understand the, the companies and, and start working with them. And that's been a great success, really. Uh, and of course, if you're going to be able to do that, you can't also be an activist and point fingers because then you, the companies won't talk to you. And, Personally, I don't really see the world in good and bad people. I, I think everybody's good intentions and you just have different, uh, well, aspects of what you have, like the freedom to act and not, so. So let's go a little bit deeper with, with the issue of the Baltic Sea. Do you think everyone can help? Can every company have an impact on the Baltic Sea? 
Uh, well, potentially, but I think what you're kind of getting at is, it, it, I mean, from the way I think we see it, uh, there are a few businesses that, that have a big impact, and, and that's where you can see the really uh, big change. It might, of course, agriculture is one of those. Uh, of course, you have uh, you have pulp and paper, you have forest, and you have steel industry. Like there, you can just, like make big changes. Uh, uh, so it's more difficult, I guess, for H and M to do something great about the Baltic Sea, to be frank. Right. Right. Uh, I think maybe they should focus on other things. Then, of course, everybody can contribute, but then it might be more efficient to do it with uh, funding. Uh, so, yeah. Right. So, how do you, uh, as an organization, define the the problem with the with the Baltic Sea? Yeah, I mean, for us, it was very important to kind of get our hands around it. And uh, the good thing about the Baltic Sea, so we started to look. So, as in many environmental problems, there are lots of various problems you can look at. And and in the Baltic Sea, it uh, fortunately turns out that there's one really big overwhelming problem. And it's really the, the root of many of the other consequences that we see, and that is eutrophication. And when you then start breaking down eutrophication, that comes from, from phosphorus and nitrogen, as Zeynep talked about earlier. Mm. Uh, and if you break that down even further, you can see that uh, we've come, basically reached our target when it comes to uh, nitrogen. And there's a lot of nitrogen directive on EU that does a lot of great job there. So the remaining thing is really phosphorus. If you want to break it down really well, narrowly, it, it's uh, limiting the amount of phosphorus coming into the Baltic Sea. We're right now at a, around 28,000 tons, and we need to get down to 21,000 tons. And when we, that's like when we really turn the, I think you have a lot of that in the, uh, in the um, climate perspective, but we're a lot further here. It's, it's not that far away. We think we might be able to reach it by 2030. So. Good, good to hear, good to hear. Uh, Luis, I want to pivot back to you. And you, you mentioned to me before that, that companies need to work with, with international frameworks. Uh, <coughs> Uh, science-based targets. What do you mean by that and could you exemplify? Well, I think that uh, many of the researchers here today, they have related to, for example, some of the international frameworks like the Sustainable Development Goals for 2030, and it's not only 17, it's 169 detailed goals. And then we have uh, the science-based target, both for climate, coming up now also for water, the water initiatives, and biodiversity. So there is a lot of international framework, and I would actually like to say that when you mentioned about H&M, they have done a lot of fantastic things internationally that they could actually transfer in terms of creating the playbook or the manual uh, or setting the targets and the KPIs for what we can do in the Baltic. Uh, so I think that the, the, the transfer of knowledge there needs to happen because what I see is that there is enough frameworks, there is enough uh, international agreements. We just need to be more focused on doing what we're doing today, meet with different disciplines and see how can we do that practically. And I also see with all of the clients that I'm having, both from the public and the private sphere, the demands now are starting to come, especially from the, the public um, buyers, because they're of, of course also tax money, that they're putting, a, okay, can you build this road, but you're going to reduce the carbon um, impact with 80%. Mm. And our engineers, they have never done that before. Or can we um, combine this with a biodiversity target where we save 30%? Of, of land in all the projects that we do. And of course, it has a huge impact when you start to setting those goals. And I think a lot of the solutions are in international companies who have done it in other places. Yeah. So I would say that we don't need to invent. We need to use what we have and scale it in a different way and package it. Just like Initiative Ute should, I think, do a playbook, a manual for how do you do this step by step here in Ute, Värmdö, in other parts of the Baltic. Mm -hmm. and. I would also say don't underestimate the need for communication. 
because we have seen some examples here. Some are very strong in the communicative part, others are not. And then what I've been lacking today, I haven't heard anything about money. It feels like all the research, oh, I got funds here and there. It's like, okay, but put a price tag on everything. I would really encourage that in everything that you do. And that's also why I say to my clients, because the most important part in a, in a, in a management group is not the CEO, it's the CFO. It's the chief financial officer. That's me as well, for a small organization. Oh, so. fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this is the guy to go to. But I think that's very important. And I would also say the person who is the legal advice, uh, because right. there we're seeing a, a new movement coming up and saying that, okay, if nature would have rights, would this be right to do? And we have a new legislation by 2020 where we say that we should take um, all our uh, ambitions and targets should relate to generational targets. And that means 100 years ahead. And almost all of our public projects, they, they, the client says to us, what are you going to do for the next coming 100 years to support us? Mm. So that's 25 political mandate periods for a politician. So of course we can do a lot. That was a long answer, but I'm sorry. No, sure. But, yeah, but put a price tag on it. How yes. do you do that? Well, there is a lot of people who are good in that. I don't, I don't think we maybe have. there is so many. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, of course, there is kind of uh, principles for that, a cost-benefit analysis, etc. Yeah. And what do I mean by that? If you take a simple example, uh, is there a lot of people here who like going swimming? Yeah. What's the matter with you? Okay, one at least. Okay. So then, of course, if you would say, how much would you value dip in the ocean? Is it 200 krona or 300 krona? And then, of course, it's the other question is like, okay, how much money would you like to have from Woodstain swimming in the ocean? Because probably when you swim in the ocean, you also do something else in there, which is not very good for the ocean. That often happens. And then people are greedy to say that, oh, then I want to have 300 or 400 or 500 kronas to not go into the water. So of course you can put money on everything. And I think that we need to start to work like this. And that's why I say also the triple bottom line, combine environmental, social and economic evaluation of everything. We can do that today. We're doing that in projects. But I will also say it's only if the the client asks for it, but we try to sell it all the time. Right. Because I really think that you need to be able to put the value on nature, you need to put the value on the water, you need to put the value on biodiversity. If we don't do that, it's not going to happen because people have an idea about and companies that nature is for free. Peter, do you agree? Yes, absolutely. I think quantification is kind of key and, and uh, maybe a complementing aspect. I think also there's you need to quantify things because every money you have has an alternative investment as well. I mean, th that was key for me going into working with the Baltic Sea. I, I, as I mentioned, I don't come from the environmental movement, so I could just as well have gone into poverty work, and etc. So, and all the funding we get, I, I wanted me to make sure that this is actually an efficient way to use that type of funding. And uh, so we started off by saying, is it worthwhile saving the Baltic Sea? Just to be able to kind of answer that question and what does it actually cost? And so, so I think it's that quantification is, is key if we're going to you know, do, do the right thing. So how much does this play a role uh, inside the company? I mean, you've talked about this, Emilia, that it plays a role in, in kind of recruitment and, and uh, a stronger engagement to your staff that you have these initiatives. Yeah, and I think it's so important also, I would say, um, sort of adding on to what you just said, that I think it's so important also for, for initiatives, for organizations um, to help uh, the founders, the, spo the sponsors, the companies that actually want to join in, in the course to communicate to their clients or to their employees. Mm. 
And, and many times I see that many organizations, uh, I know this myself, coming from the NGO world, uh, they do something that is, is sort of one solution for all, instead of really going into, okay, how should we lift what we do to, to this company that we work with or to this company that we work with? It takes more time, but we'll, it will also pay off because once the, the engagement is higher within the company, it's also, I mean, good for the organization that you are supporting. And um, I see that in, in our company, it's very important for all our employees that we are engaged here. On the coffee side, we are engaged for, for um, single female um, farmers in Colombia. And that is also a project that our employees are super engaged in. But um, I, I think it's, it's really, it's, it's one thing to support a cause, but it's as important to communicate about it internally. To, to somebody, somebody spoke about storytelling here uh, earlier today. And I don't think you can do too much storytelling about what you are doing and what you are supporting. Because if you just send away by Christmas, you send away 300,000 crowns to some big organization somewhere, nobody cares. Uh, it's, it's sort of a good thing, but if you don't know more about it, how can you be engaged? Right, right. Luis, is this something that you recommend to your clients as well? You talked about the CFO. Can, it, can HR play a role here as well? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I would say that the, the companies and organizations I work with, they have passed that. They are beyond that. Mm. So I think that for, the, for a lot of the work that we do right now, it's quite tricky, tricky issues. I mean, it's the kind of the last carbon percentage or getting things together because a lot of these goals, they're also conflicting climate, carbon, uh, water, biodiversity. And then if you add the social aspects and here now we're talking about the just transition, if people don't have food on the table after COVID, we have five to 10 million poor people in Italy and Spain. It's the countries that we go, for, you know, as tourists. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not going to care about climate uh, if uh, they don't have food on the table. Mm -hmm. So so that social part, I think, is also very important. And that's what companies are looking into. And what I think what's really going to drive um, the development the coming year is the EU taxonomy, which is a new legislation where there are coming in recommendations and requirements to, um, you have to have a climate ambition. That's where we're starting now. And then comes water, biodiversity, pollution. So how can we put a measure on that? And there, you're not going to be able to get uh, financing, investment, if you don't have that. And of course, then you need the data. So uh, the ones investing today, and also I would say banks, they are struggling to get the right data because we're, again, we're working with default data. We're not working with precise data. And that's even, I would say, like, in, in areas that are quite mature, if I take my previous role working with food, we're still working with the fault data when we put a carbon footprint on this product or on a piece of meat. So I think that's the, that's the next uh, challenge. So HR, for sure, mm. it's important. But again, we need to solve totally different uh, problems. And the last thing I would recommend everybody to do is to work with scenarios. So you work with a one and a half degree scenario, a three degree scenario, a five degree scenario, and you look at your you know, if you work with property, for example, you look at your houses and you see, okay, is, are these houses, are they one and a half uh, degree uh, applicable or is it three degrees? And then you see what problems you have coming out from that. Right, right. So <clears throat> one of the things we wanted to do with this conference is sort of bridge academia, business, investment, and so forth. I'm curious, all of you guys, some reflections on what you heard this morning. Um, 
what are some of the challenges you see when looking at things coming out of the, the academic sector? And, and how can we sort of match, how can we bridge these, some of these projects that are sort of waiting for funding, they're not really uh, there yet in terms of application or, or you know, fixed products? Any thoughts, Louise? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I already have like three of the researchers that I have been talking today where I see that I have clients that need your support. Uh, then you may have already been in contact with them and they don't understand the, the, what you're doing. Uh, so we could uh, cooperate there. And I think that, for example, me and Seinep, we discussed during, um, during lunch here now, I think that quite early on you should look at, okay, Fosper, okay, Okay, maybe the agriculture sector, maybe one of the big uh, uh, food retailers that I know are working a lot with innovation. So I think we need to talk more to find these uh, breeding beds and connections and finding the right people because normally it's having the right contacts also when you knock on the door. Um, so I think, uh, and I, I would also, what I lacked in this uh, first part is we need to start to talk about money. What is the alternative cost? Okay, what is the phosphorus solution right now compared with uh, uh, getting the raw material from North Africa? And how will it look like for the next coming 10 years with the scenarios that we have? So we need to start that dialogue. So let's not just pretend that it's kind of uh, public uh, money and somebody else is going to pay for it because it's not. There is no free lunches. Mm. Any other reflections from this morning, Peter? Uh, well... There's always this, I, I think there's called it the value of death to sometimes as well. I, having a patent portfolio myself and actually started my own company once in a, upon a time, uh, there is this kind of gap and, and I think that's the risk you have, I don't know, you used to have Nitec and you have Vinova, that's a typical uh, problem you have. I don't know how delicate this is, I mean how special that is when you come to the Baltic Sea. Uh, what might be, what I see maybe is a problem and, and to some extent where we might come in as well is that some of these benefits are more common benefits than they are to the specific company. So, I mean, coming a little bit back to what you, you talked about, we see the environment as for free. Mm. So maybe that adds on something that, of course, if you can get, like you have the carbon compensation you can get. I mean, if you have that type of structure for nutrients, which is actually a proposal out there uh, that was released by Hovatminet in this summer, uh, then, of course, that might help to get, uh, to see the commercial uh, opportunity in Synab or any of the other people's uh, suggestions, but otherwise I think maybe that's a typical question you have right. when, when you, can, you right. have ideas and you have a scientist and you need to bridge that little bit gap. Do we have any input or questions from the audience before we wrap up this, uh, this session? Yes, let's uh, bring out the mic. The question is, are we ready to pay more for uh, something that uh, is more sustainable? Yeah, I think that is a very good question. It's really tricky to answer, but I think it's like you need to dig deeper. For example, if we would take your specific issue here now, there is a lot of companies in the majority of companies that are kind of serious about sustainability. They're working with a science-based target and they have put targets to be net zero in terms of a carbon and climate perspective. They will do the same for water and biodiversity in just a few months, I would say. So the new gold is, of course, carbon and the carbon calculation. So they will not be able to meet their targets on a product level if they don't start to practice new, um, new kind of uh, science or new kind of ways of meeting this. But I think you need to work very closely with them. That's why you need to have this kind of matchmaking and looking into that and testing it. Uh, because they will not be able to continue selling the cheap products the way they've been doing before. But I'm not saying that it's easy, but the, the solution will come with new scientific revolutions. Otherwise, they will not be able to manage. Or somebody here said 
Uh, I think it was around the algae, of course. Then the problem is, okay, can we put cement in algae? Yeah, we can do that. But then, okay, what durability will the cement have? That's what my guys are working on, you know, when we build new bridges or the, the golden bridge that we just uh, finalized. So I think that uh, we need to start a dialogue. So KTH need to have maybe an even more active hub for you to work with companies that needs the solution. And we need to, and that's where Binova comes in to fund those kind of ideas. And I know they don't do that today. It's very frustrating, uh, but maybe we can work on that together because we're not going to have time if we're going to continue like this here now. So um, it was a long uh, answer, but I think again to work uh, revenue driven because the COVID was very good. Uh, I think a vaccination shot, is it like 20 or 30 sec? But for a Swede, they valued it uh, to the amount of 5,000 krona to get the vaccination. So there you see the difference of the value of a new product or a more sustainable product, what, what comparison with what the actual cost is or the actual cost of a product today, if you see the benefits of it. Was there another question, Maria? Yeah, it's, it's a quite similar question, but uh, for the more public, uh, I mean, since I'm now in the construction business, and uh, we are talking about sustainability, yeah. but I'm lacking the definition of sustainability because one of our products are cast iron. Yeah. It, it, it uh, remains for 150 years. You don't have to exchange it. And if you compare it, because we're always chasing prices, and I think what you're talking about, Liz, is very important because we have to um, redefine our calculation. How do we value things and, yeah. and, uh, on life cycle? Mm. Because then we have the, the actual answer. So um, uh, your answer will be a little bit similar to your question. I think every company should have a climate department. As an economic department, we should have climate departments and redefine this, what is really sustainability. What but, but I think there is a definition of sustainability and I think that there are quite good recommendations and the Public Procurement uh, Authority is redefining their purchasing uh, kind of ideas now how they're going to um, buy things. So I think that's good. I think also that maybe sometimes the purchasers you're dealing with when you're doing these projects, sometimes we do them together, uh, they are the wrong people to talk about when we talk about innovation. Ta take Trafikverket, for example, um, the National Road Association. Uh, the guys having the money for what we're talking about here, it's innovation. So you need to have a different dialogue with them versus uh, the public procu pro procurement guys. So I think, again, it's a misunderstanding or it's an opportunity of how we find financing for long-term solutions. But the definition for sustainability, I don't think it's a problem. It's how we develop the tools in order to leverage concrete business opportunities. So I, I'm, but, but I see your point, but I do not really agree there. Because also if you add in the 100-year perspective, which there is on a lot of these um, assignments, then, then, I mean, your product is good, right? All right, I, 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 <laughs> I sense a new discussion spurring here. We're gonna to have to save that for, for the boat ride home to the mainland. We need to move on with, with our next segment. Uh, Peter, Louise, Emilia, thank you so much for your insights. You've been listening to the Scandinavian Mind podcast with me, Conrad Olson. This show was edited by Eric Sedin. If you liked what you heard, follow us on your preferred podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To get the latest news, insights and invites to upcoming events, 
Sign up to our newsletter. Just go to ScandinavianMind.com to become part of our movement. Thank you.